Well, good morning. My name is Travis. I'm one of the members here of Redeemer Church. And I'm going to be uh, bringing us a message in James chapter 5, a series that we've been going through for the past few months. So if you could open up your Bibles, James chapter 5. It's page 1013 if you're using a Black Pew Bible. And it's actually page 1013 on my non-Black Pew Bible. Isn't that coincidence? All right. Well, anything worth doing, as you know, takes preparation. So let's take, for example, something that's on my mind right now, and that's gardening. I know we're still a couple months away from the growing season, but I started thinking about this a little bit early because I like to start my seeds indoors usually and keep them alive. And they get a little bit bigger, and then I can put them out of my garden. As soon as the soil gets warm enough, I can, can plant them in the ground. And that just kind of gives things a head start. And then all I have to do until harvest, is just tend to those plants. But it takes a lot of preparation. I have, to, I have to do a lot of work. And actually, it's exhausting work sometimes, thinking about getting ready for it. My kids even get excited for this. And if we overdo the plants, we can actually sell some and make a little bit of money, which we've done. And that's been fun too. But this all takes a lot of work. Well, the hardest part of all for me is the patience. I cannot wait. I'm telling you, I can almost taste the fresh tomatoes. I can't wait for that. That fresh, sweet fruit from my garden. I cannot wait for that. I cannot go into the grocery store and buy one of these, like, sort of reddish tomatoes. We brought some home from the store yesterday, and I was like, what is this? It's like a, a baseball painted red or something. It's horrible. It's white on the inside. But it's the patience that, get, that gets to me. And, and if I don't have that patience, I'll give up partway through and I might end up with some fruit, but my garden grows full of weeds and I'm not taking care of it. Um, and that's the hardest part for me. And then all, all the tomatoes and everything dies because I'm not taking care of it. I'm getting distracted and I'm kind of walking away and I'm getting impatient. Well, taking a look at this passage today, James uses that exact illustration in this text. Uh, we're going to see that we are so prone to impatience, which leads to grumbling. It leads to this lack of perseverance and just getting through the daily grind of things. And leads us to escapism, which is a real word. We're all, we're all prone to wanting to just escape and run away. Everything around us, you turn on the news, you, you open up your Facebook feed, everything really is discouraging. And that really causes our hearts to struggle, even, I mean, already, we're already struggling, and then we get even more discouraged, and we're struggling even more because we just feel like it's this constant bombardment of almost like bad news all the time. And we just lack perseverance. We lack perspective. Um, we feel as if we're sort of just trapped alone in the trenches and not really finding any way of, uh, of getting out of that. It's because we... We really don't have an eternal perspective. But James has been admonishing us through the book. They, week after week, we've been hearing this. And if you've been you know, following along in this series with us, James has seriously been trying very hard to shift our focus off ourselves. Take our eyes off of our temporary, uh, just fleeting, lustful pleasures and sins that we feel get us through the day, day by day, through, through this grind. Rather, he's trying to help us refocus 
and establish our hearts on the Lord with an eternal perspective of Him in the midst of our struggle, in the midst of our pain and our suffering. So instead of feeling trapped, like we're, we're feeling like we're just kind of like drudging through it on our own, you know, this life really is a blessing, even in the middle of pain and suffering, isn't it? Because it's the only way that we have this corridor through which we can get closer to God by the life we're living. And he comes along near us. He comes alongside us. And so what James is saying here, for what, you know, what, what we need to do is to establish our hearts. And I'm just going to rip that right out of his text, and that is going to be my proposition. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord. That's exactly what this text is about. And so when I read through this, think about that. Think about establishing your hearts for the coming of the Lord. All right, we're going to start in chapter 5, verse 7 through 12. He says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job. You've seen the purpose of the Lord and how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or, or any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. All right, so the first thing we're going to do, we're going to go through this, these, we're going to go through this fairly quickly. We're going to go through it twice because I want us to see it from two perspectives. I want to see it from establishing our hearts. It's going to be the first piece, and the second piece is going to be from the perspective of the coming of the Lord, because we see both of those things here contrasted side by side. And I tried to do something a little creative here, and this is new for me, so bear with me. I used a single letter, I mean a single word that starts with the letter P, and you'll see them here in just a minute, to sort of define every point that I'm going to make. And because this is a two-point sermon, I thought it was important, I learned this last time I preached, Two-point sermons really need subpoints to help you follow along, or else it's easy to get a little bit lost. So I'm going to make this excruciatingly clear and hopefully not too annoying with the letter P. All right. So, to establish your hearts means to set firmly in place. So I'll get to the letter P's in just a minute. I'm going to start off with explaining before we get there. So, so establishing your hearts means to set firmly in place what cannot be moved. Okay? And the whole book, James, has been pressing on this all the way through in how we speak, in our actions, and in our attitudes. He's instructed us how to live as sinful people in a way that can glorify God with this posture of humility. Have you guys seen that? It's been all about this posture of, of real, true humility. And here, like I said, he's setting up this contrast between us and, and establishing our hearts and the coming of the Lord. And so the first one that we're going to see in verses 7 and 8 is patience. He says it twice in 7 and in 8. He says, be patient. 
until the coming of the Lord. And again in 8, he says, be, you also be patient. Establish your hearts. He uses this illustration of farming because the people in, those, in, those, in that day, they were, they were all farmers or they were very, very closely tied to farming because it was their way of life. It was their means of survival. They, their lives depended on the agricultural calendar. And so when James uses this illustration of a farmer waiting for the precious fruit, they understood exactly what he meant, the importance of a good and bountiful harvest for their life, for their survival. Everything they had depended on the harvest. They couldn't just go down to the grocery store and buy something because they were the grocery store. They were making the things that people were buying, and they were doing it together in these communities. So it says, be patient until, it re- until you receive the early and, late, and the late rains. So Palestine, where Israel lived, and even today, has a much different climate than we have here in almost all of the United States. Palestine is very similar to San Diego County, where we lived before we came here. Um, they're, they're actually almost identical in a lot of ways. And 75% of their rain comes between the months of December and February. And that's actually their growing seasons. It's a warmer climate there than what we have here in the winter. So they plant in the fall and harvest in the spring. And so they are extremely dependent. And this is at the lower um, altitudes, not the higher ones, because it's cold enough to snow in the mountains. But they will uh, plant before the early rain, and they'll harvest after the late rain. And the harvest really, or the growing season really depends on these two sets of rains. And this statement that James is making here about these early and late rains is in reference to Deuteronomy 11. James, again, another thing to know about the, him is that he is constantly referencing the Scriptures, the Old Testament. So in Deuteronomy 11, listen, this, this is the Lord speaking to Moses. He says, And if you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, he will give the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the later rain, that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil, and he will give grass in your fields for your livestock, and you shall eat and be full. Take care, lest your heart be deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. And then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain, and the land will yield no fruit. So it's important in there, what is important, I want, us to, what I want us to hear this, is that if we are not patiently waiting on the Lord and His provision, we will be deceived. We will turn aside. And in their case, they were tempted literally to worship idols of the lands around them, the nations around them, who were kind of living in the same land, who were worshiping idols, and they saw these guys worshiping because they thought that's what brought the rain, not God. They thought, well, maybe, maybe we should worship along with these guys because that's, that's what's bringing the rain. Well, they were deceived into thinking that, and they were not leaning on the Lord through that dry spell, through that drought, and between those rains. So that's how simple this is. It's the way he uses this illustration. You see, the Lord warned Israel of idolatry, and James is also leading, uh, warning us Two, of this lack of patience leads to idolatry. If we don't want to stick with the promises of, Lord, of the Lord and wait for these later rains, this, this blessing, as he's calling it, the, 
the provision of the Lord and how he provides for us, we will be swept into uh, deception of the world around us and we start looking at the culture and what they're doing and how we see them getting, you know, their provision maybe. And it's easy to lose patience, to lose focus. Okay, so we're going to move on. I want to get through these quickly. So the first one was patience. Okay, the next one we see is praise. Verse 9, he says, don't grumble. He doesn't actually say praise, but I'm going to use praise because it's a P and it's, it works, okay? I, I don't want to turn this into a list of moralistic, don't do this and do that. I want us to be focusing on the heart intention behind what he's saying. Because listen, James learned from Jesus. And that's what Jesus did and that's what James does. So grumbling is a lack of patience and ex- expressing your discontent with your brother or your sister. And it's either right directly at them or behind their back. And that is a lack of praise. It's a lack of thanksgiving. And, and he says, do not grumble, right there in verse 9, uh, as a summary of everything in chapter 3, taming the tongue, chapter 4, on speaking evil. Do not grumble. Go back and read chapter 3 and chapter 4 and you see what he means. Go back and read the book of James this week and see why I say this. And... That will also give you a great perspective for Kyle's sermon next week as he wraps it up. See, grumbling is a sin ultimately against God, even if it's directed at a brother or a sister. Because in Matthew 7, chapter, uh, I'm sorry, Matthew 7, verses 1 and 2, Jesus Christ said, Judge not that you may not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, you will, it will be measured to you. You see, grumbling is casting a judgment upon someone else for which we will be held liable for the same level of judgment by the judge of the universe. That's how serious this grumbling really is down at the heart level. And it's a symptom of no thankfulness. It's a symptom of this lack of praise. If we were really thankful for one another, we would be praising one another for the, the, the things that we see, the, things that, the little basic things. And we'd be praising God for one another. We'd be praising God for the, for the people in our lives and for our families instead of grumbling about them. We're so prone to grumbling, aren't we? We're going to move on into in the, next, the next P, which is prophets in verse 10. He says, consider the prophets or take the prophets as a way, as an illustration, and as an example of this life of suffering and how these guys, it was common for, the, for these prophets in Israel uh, to be li- living a life of, of, of pain and suffering. But he says, take these prophets, and in Hebrews, describes these men as who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. But, listen to this, and they did this in Israel for Israel, but they were tortured. They were refused to accept release so that they might raise again to better life. Others were suffered from mocking and flogging, They were even in chains, and they were imprisoned. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. But they kept, early on, uh, earlier on, they said that they they kept this perspective of, of eternity in mind. They knew 
that their present suffering was not the end of their life. That's something that the prophets knew. That's something that James has in perspective, and he has this eternal perspective on life that he's trying to communicate to us here. And he's just saying, if you need an example of suffering and hardship, look no further than the prophets. So next in verse 11, we're going to see persevere. He actually says, remain steadfast. As he's talking about Job, he says, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. But I'm going to use persevere. Because like the prophets, Job as well was a good example of someone who suffered tremendously while remaining stubbornly, persistently wanting the Lord's blessing and the Lord's favor in the midst of his most horrible battle. And I use the word stubborn here, <laughs> stubbornly here not in a negative way, not in an evil cantankerous way, but in an immovable, attached to the Lord way. He wouldn't let go of God, even in the middle of his worst, uh, most painful struggle. And people were telling him, curse God and die. He said, no, I will not. I want the Lord's blessing. He was stubbornly persistent. Made me think of an image that I saw one time of a, of a red bird in the middle of an extreme downpour. And she was huddled over her nest with her wings, kind of protecting her young, stubbornly hanging on in the middle of, you know, this hurricane force winds. Because she, she knew that it would come to an end. That battle was not going to last forever. So when we hang on to the peace of God that surpasses all understanding, we have a perspective on eternity rather than on that temporary battle. Don't let go. That's what he's saying. Don't let go. So the last component that we see in verse 12 on establishing our hearts is a new word for me called probity. Maybe not for you, but it was for me, and I liked it because I like what it means. Because he says, do not swear. Well, this word probity is a strong quality of moral principle, honesty, decency, and integrity. So verse 12 seems like a little bit of an outlier for us in our text, but it doesn't change anything about the meaning of the passage. And in fact, it goes right along with taming the tongue. This idea of swearing and taking oaths that he's talking about here is not like our idea of swearing where you're, you know, cursing, cussing, using profanity. No, it's this. It was a common practice in those days and allowable by their law to, um, to, to swear on something, whether it was the temple or heaven or earth or anything else on, you know, your mother's grave or your father's grave. But here what, here, here's what Jesus said about this in Matthew 5. He said, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is a footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the, great city of, is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black, but let what you, simply, what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than that comes from evil. Well, the point here is, our words are not ultimately um, empowered by ourselves. Okay, Our words are nothing without the Lord. 
I like what this one author said about this. She says, we don't even have the power or authority to make oaths. The Lord is displeased when we don't keep our words, whether we swear by heaven or not. Believers are walking testimonies of God's faithfulness without saying a word. So let us start today with yes and no to the daily request from others without adding anything to it or adding any promise to it. So these oaths might look something like this today where, you know, we feel like maybe someone doesn't quite believe us when we say yes or no. And so we have to add a little extra like punch to the end. Like, yes, I'll do that because, you know, I, I, and you kind of have to, you know, justify what you're saying or add a promise to it. That's not necessary if we're truthful, honest, upright, integrity people of the Lord, okay? It's, so it really does go, that does go with the theme of taming our tongue. If we're sinning in our words, this is still a struggle, or a symptom of this struggle of, of, of lack of perseverance, grumbling instead of praising. It's this wishy-washy faith that we're not quite sure, you know, should, you know, should I, what should I say? Should I go there? Should I help them? You know, it's kind of like we're not really wanting to fully commit. I would say fully commit, and then if you realize you made a mistake, learn from it because you'll go through that situation and you learn from it. But if we just sit in this wishy-washy attitude, not really willing to commit, never really be of substance to our fellow brothers and sisters. We really do need to take the victim hat off sometimes and then confess that what we do really it just is sin. We make these decisions. And sin is sin. We choose to sin. We're not victims. We are victims in, in a sense by others, but we choose to sin. Establish your hearts is what, what James is saying. Choose, choose to learn from those mistakes. And next time, do it better. I'm really not trying to come down hard on us. That's why I didn't want to make this moralistic go do this kind of sermon. We actually really do have control over our actions and our attitudes. I say this to my kids almost every day. Okay, so we've gone through this in the perspective of what we should do, of establishing our hearts, which were patience, praise, profits, perseverance, probity, and, uh, and that's how we establish our hearts. Now we're going to take a look at the second time through the other perspective of this passage, which is about the coming of the Lord. And I've also labeled these P. All of these subpoints are all going to be labeled P to kind of go along with the theme. So verse 7 through 8. Let's take a look at 7 through 8 again. What we see there is predestined. The Lord is coming soon, and it is certain. It is imminent, and it is close. There is not a date set on it. That is dangerous to think that we can, anyone can predict a date, but it is predestined. That, mean it will, that means it will happen. Now, how, why do I say that about this when it, he doesn't say anything about predestined here? Well, James knows that it's true. The coming of the Lord is at hand. He knows it. He saw Jesus. He, he lived with him. He walked with him. He heard Jesus talk about his return. He knows that he's going to return. God has promised it. And God is patient. And he will keep this promise. So why the waiting? Why all this waiting if God knows this is going to happen? Well, it's to allow us to establish our hearts. 
is to allow us to establish our hearts. It's that simple. So when we feel like we're waiting and it's like, oh, come on, Lord, get this over with already. Please, establish your hearts. Why are you impatient? Because the length of time of eternity, I mean, nothing compares. Nothing compares to that. We, we can't even, because this is all we know. We look at our lives and we go, man, this seems like, I, I, never, I don't know when this, you know, this is going to end. And we're just drudging through it day by day. And it's just churning. But we use this time now to establish our hearts for the coming of Christ, which is going to make this life look like nothing. It's going to look like nothing. Because, as we'll see next here in verse 9, Jesus is our peacemaker. Again, a word peacemaker, and the word peace isn't even in verse 9. But I use the word peacemaker because he says, do not grumble. Grumbling, impatience, is a lack of peace. So it might sound strange that I use the word peacemaker here, but I use it because Jesus says this of himself, that he is a peacemaker. Well, okay, we have to square that a little bit with why James also says that Jesus is judge. So how is Jesus peacemaker and judge at the same time? How can both can be, be true? Because it's a matter of how we view the judgment of the Lord. Because, simply, Jesus' judgment does make peace. Jesus is our peacemaker between us and the Father because of the offense of our sin against him. And it can only be done through his blood on the cross, shed by his death for our sin. Jesus makes peace with those who come to him, to the Father. That's how he is our peacemaker. So how does this, this grumbling that he talks about here in verse 9 have to do with Jesus being a peacemaker? Well, remember a few weeks ago I actually preached on James 4, 11, and 12, and this is what it says. It says, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if, you are a judge, but, but if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? This is the grumbling. This is the grumbling. Here we see in, verse, uh, in 5, 9, is the judgment of the law that, we just, that I just read about back in 4, 11 through 12. And it is speaking evil against your brother, and it is speaking evil against the law and judging the law. So when we do this, we're placing ourselves over the law, over Christ, and making ourselves in place of God in a, in a simple way. And we minimize it in our mind. We don't think, well, how can that be? But guys, it's idolatry and it's self-worship at its core and it's pride. That's what he's saying. But we minimize that. We don't want to look at it as such. Because it's so easy for us to do. And that is not peacemaking. We're not making peace with one another when we do these things. It's not this posture of humility that James wants from us, that he's been motivating us towards. And it's what Jesus died to free us from, this oppressive self-worship. And you see, that's how Jesus is our peacemaker here in verse 9. And that's why he commands us not to grumble against one another because it's not doing us any good. And there are, there are constructive ways of talking to one another about difficult things. 
that aren't grumbling. I think that takes a lot of wisdom and practice. And it is difficult. So the next thing we're going to see moving on into verse 10 is proclaim. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. They proclaim. The prophets proclaim the name of the Lord by speaking his name, and the Lord will always make his name known. His name, his word, is not far from any of us. And the question is, are we willing to listen? The prophets, they, they faithfully proclaimed the name of the Lord, but people were not listening, and then they even tortured those prophets because of what they were saying about them or to them. They minimized it. So what do we do? Are we willing to repent when we hear the word of the Lord coming down upon us and kind of pressing on us about a sin struggle? Are we, are we willing to just minimize it and ignore it? Guys, God proclaims. He's proclaiming all of the time. And that's meant to draw us. You guys remember the sermon on the rebuke? That's a good thing. The rebuke is meant to draw us out of sin. Do we tend, or do we tend to just minimize that? and make little of these warnings. We need to listen for him, because he's speaking to us. We're going to keep moving on here in verse 11. We're going to see purpose. Verse 11, we see the purpose. It says, He is compassionate and merciful above all. His mercies are new every single day. I try to wake up these days um, thinking about how, how God's mercies are new each and every day. And it, and it really helps I was talking to Kyle about this through a text message a while back. It's so good to just wake up and think that and to just meditate on it. How, how even in the midst of struggle and difficulty, his mercies are new each and every day. What, what, are we, what is our focus going to be on? Is it going to be on the, this temporary pain and suffering that is so real, and I don't want to minimize that, or are we going to focus on God and what he is doing in the midst of it? Pain is real. We all experience it in some way. We all do suffer in some way. But we will not suffer forever. The point here is to take our perspective off ourselves and look at Jesus again. Because he does bring an end through his compassion and his mercy. That's his purpose. That's what he wants to do for us. That is how good and loving the Lord really is. I thought about this just the other day, that if this world that we live in now and all the suffering that we endure in order to experience forever happiness with God one day is totally worth it if we get to live with him forever. It's totally worth it. It's a light and momentary affliction is all it is. And I want you guys to, to grasp that. I want you to see a glimpse of that. Because it's this heavenly, eternal perspective that he wants us to have. It's easy to be deceived by the world around us. Um, just, just like he said earlier on, you know, waiting between the, late and the, the early and the late rains and getting impatient and being deceived about the world around us and losing patience and kind of wandering off and forgetting about, you know, where is our forever home? Is it here on earth? With these afflictions and pains and these small little pleasures? Or is it really eternity? 
um, because we can't ignore the alternative that is alluded to in verse 12, which is the opposite of, eternally, of, of eternal heavenly glory, which is punishment. And we get a glimpse of this in verse 12. We see punishment in verse 12 in an interesting way uh, where we see un- condemnation. Because Jesus Christ really will condemn sin forever in hell forever. And this is a very good and fair punishment because it, it is a complete, uh, almost like kicking God in the teeth because we don't like what he's provided for us and we want to ignore it. And we turn from God and his compassion through Jesus. And I know this is an unpopular topic, but I'm going to use a, an illustration from Piper because I, lo- I like the way he says this. He says, hell is like the keel of a ship. And I'm not even sure where I heard this. It might have been at T4G a few years ago because I tried to find this illustration in a video or something and I couldn't find it. But he said this, and I heard him say it, that hell is like the keel of a ship. It's, the keel is the extremely heavy part that hangs you know, below the ship, like the ship is up here at the water level. You don't see the keel. It's hidden down below. And it's the heaviest part of the boat that keeps it from tipping over. I mean, even when the wind isn't blowing, it keeps it straight. But as soon as the wind starts to blow... It's what keeps that ship from completely falling over and capsizing. You don't see it, but it serves an extremely important role for the survival of that ship, actually. Piper says hell is like that keel. It's down there. It's very heavy. We don't see it, but it serves an extremely important purpose. As I realize, hell is an unpopular topic anywhere you go. And especially, you know, in Christianity today, we don't hear a whole lot about this. We don't hear it being preached. We sometimes like to imagine that it's not really down there. But the Bible speaks of it often, and we cannot ignore its reality. It really is there. We have no choice after we die, whether we go to heaven or hell. It happens in this life, what we decide, how we live, what we do. The Bible alludes, uh, this, verse, sorry, this verse alludes to hell, the very end where it says that you may not fall under condemnation. Let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Our words reflect what we trust. Our words reflect where we're putting our hope. Really think about that as you speak through your days. Are you accepting and trusting Jesus as your Savior? And is that affecting the way you speak and the way you live? If not, why? If you're you're putting him up as your Lord and Savior and even saying that, but then it's not affecting the way you live your life, why is that? Or if you've never considered these things, you've never thought about the fact that there is a heaven or a hell, or I might be going to one of these two places, I don't even know what this guy's talking about. Come see me. I'm nice. I'm not going to be scary. Or anyone else here. We want to talk to you about this. This is eternally, eternally important. Okay. Lastly, I need to mention something that's going to be in Kyle's sermon. I'm sorry, Kyle, but I'm going to do this anyway. It's in the next text. But I have to bring this up because it is so important, and that is prayer. That is the last P. You don't see it in my text, but I'm going to steal it anyway because of how important it is in light of all of these things. We can do all this stuff, we can think all these things, and we can look forward to the coming of Jesus, but nothing, nothing is going to ground us in him like prayer. 
Prayer is what helps us to hold on to Jesus through the good and the bad. It's the number one way we can communicate with him. It's how we fellowship with the church. And it's how the Lord mysteriously works through us. It's through our prayer. It's how we reprioritize. It's how we understand. Guys, I think it, it reprograms our brain a little bit. Like, pray. Pray through the Bible. That's what helps us understand the Lord and His heart. That's why I mentioned prayer. This text is ultimately about the Lord and His imminent, absolute, predestined return to earth. James knows it, James feels it, James witnessed it, and he's living it out. He wants us to know it. He has a perspective that we don't. He witnessed the feeding of the 5,000. He walked down these dusty roads learning from the creator of the universe. We didn't. We didn't get that. But James had the privilege of writing these things down as an eyewitness for us to benefit from because he wants us to get it. Guys, I want us to take our eyes off of our earthly situation once in a while. I, I know it's hard, because I'm right there with you. And I want us to think about eternity. So I have an illustration. We don't do this very often, but I have a prop. It's a rope. Can, any, can you guys see this way back there? So, all right. Here's what we're going to do. Imagine this rope is your life. And this little red tip, can you see the red? You see it? See some heads nodding? The red is your life, and the yellow is, is heaven, it's eternity. It's heaven or hell. Now, all we see right now is that little red spot. And this is our perspective most of the time. We don't think about what else is left for us, and we think this is the end of it. But guys... There's so much more. It's unending. I mean, even if I had the longest rope in the world, I couldn't do this illustration even better, and it's getting all tangled up. But guys, it's unending. I mean, heaven, eternity, it's going to last forever. There you go. They got tangled up. Guys, he is establishing his kingdom to reign and rule over the remade heavens and remade earth. And we get to be a part of that if you're in him. If you're not in him, please, I'm, I'm begging you, come, come see us, talk to us. That's why we're here. The Lord is predestined. He is our peacemaker. He has proclaimed. He has purposed. He will punish. And we must respond in prayer. Because we must establish our hearts in patience and praise. Considering the prophets, persevere, speak with probity, and pray. I want to end with a prayer from Paul, actually. That's going to be my prayer as we finish up. Because I think this is my go-to prayer in the Bible. And it's from Colossians 1. And as, we, and as I pray this, I want you to think about your life. I want you to think about how you can establish your hearts. Now, I want to say, when we pray, please pray that the Lord would, you know, 
Yes, we can pray that the Lord would remove afflictions and would heal us and, and, he, you know, and from our temporary pain and suffering. That, that is true. We, want, we need to do that. God doesn't want us to live in misery, but he wants us to pray in such a way that we would be asking him for something greater than what we see right here in front of us. So I'm going to pray uh, the text from Colossians 1 as we finish. Lord, we ask that you may fill us with the knowledge of your will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that we may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to you, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of you, Lord, being strengthened with all power according to your glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Lord, you have delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of your beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.